Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that when I am weak, that I am strong, because the strength that is flowing is not my own strength. And Lord, this is true this morning, this is true every morning, Lord, that I can do nothing apart from Christ, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, Lord, I pray your strength as I proclaim your word. Lord, I pray for your power to move in your people. Lord, that you would draw us all close to you as we behold the wonders of the gospel. Lord, and I pray that you would call those who to this point are not your people granting them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first part of John chapter 6, we talked about how the crowds had, had gathered and were fed by Jesus miraculously as he fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a small boy's lunch. And then after that, he miraculously walked on the water as he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We saw that he also enabled Peter to do the same. And then there on the other side, a crowd gathered, and Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that, that for the vast majority of them, they'd only come to Jesus because of the food, because of, of the food that they had received. So the crowds proved that they had hearts that were far from God, just as the hearts of the Pharisees were far from God. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 35 through to the end of the chapter. But there in verse 35, Jesus says plainly to the crowd that's gathered in the synagogue, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Imagine that. No more hunger or thirst. Have you ever been really hungry? I'm talking about that, that gnawing hunger when, when your stomach is churning and your, your body feels weak. Now, very few in our culture know real hunger. What about thirst? When your mouth and throat are so dry that you can hardly swallow. These people to whom Jesus was preaching knew hunger. They lived in a subsistence culture where crops often failed. They, they knew thirst. This was an arid environment. Rain was sporadic. But Jesus wasn't talking about relief from mere physical hunger and physical thirst. This is relief from spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. 
Many people don't think they're spiritually starved and dehydrated, but they are. This was true then, and it's true today. Remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she wanted H2O, but Jesus offered her living water in verse 10. The water that Jesus offered her would keep her from ever thirsting. It would be a well of water living, springing up to everlasting life. Verse 14, she wanted the water, but she didn't realize that it came at a cost. She had filled her life with sin and false worship. She would have to let go of her sin in order to find that life. She'd have to turn from her immoral life in order to find eternal life. She'd have to turn from her false Samaritan worship in order to worship God in spirit and in truth. And by God's grace, it seems that she turned from her sin, that she repented and followed Jesus. Now, people think of idolatry as bowing before statues and making sacrifices to them, but anything can be an idol, even good things. John Calvin said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We are consistently and constantly turning things into idols. Entertainment, sports, possessions, education, career, relationship, children, church. The issue is when we let these things get in the way of our relationship with God, we find our satisfaction in them above God. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The two evils are rejecting God and finding pleasure in something besides God. How are you seeking to quench your thirst? The crowds in John 6 sought Jesus because he had fed them with loaves and fishes. They were focused on their physical needs. He said to them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus came to, fill, to feed them with bread that would endure eternally. Jesus is presenting bread that endures for eternal life. That's good news. That's good news for those who receive it. Jesus could feed them with something immeasurably better. They had filled their lives with legalism. They thought that salvation was something that they had to do. So they asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 28, Jesus told them that the only work that they had to do was to believe in him whom God had sent. Verse 29, Jesus explained that God gives true bread from heaven, and the bread is he which comes from heaven and gives life to the world, verses 32 and 33, they had to let go of their works-based righteousness and just believe in Jesus. That's good news for those who receive it. All you have to do is believe. But how did they respond? 
They rejected Jesus. We're going to see this again and again through this chapter. The people will reject Jesus, and then again and again, Jesus will tell us why. They reject Jesus because God has not drawn them. They reject Jesus because God has not called them. They reject Jesus because God has not given them the ability to believe. Now, when Jesus had initially told them that he was the bread of life, that they had to receive the bread of life, they seemed to respond well. In verse 34, they said to Jesus, Sir, give us this bread always. But not convinced of the reality of the response, Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is good news for those who receive it. So often people will receive gospel truths with joy only to fall away shortly thereafter. I've had this happen repeatedly. Have a conversation with three people about biblical truth. One will respond with hostility, one will respond wholeheartedly, and one will respond with indifference. But come back to them a couple of days later, and you'll find that the one who was angry now agrees. The one who, who was indifferent, so the, the one who was indifferent now agrees also. But the one who had agreed has now rejected what you've said. Like in the parable of the sower, or more accurately, the parable of the soils, the end result can't be judged by the initial response. It is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. In verse 36, Jesus gives the reason for their rejection. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They don't believe, so they don't receive it. And now we find out why in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. They didn't come to Jesus because the Father hadn't given them to him. However, Jesus will never cast out true disciples. Again, that's good news for those who receive it. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you, Christian, from the love of God. That's good news for those who receive it. Come to Jesus and he will never cast you out. And yet more good news. Jesus didn't come to do his own will. He said in, in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Not to do part of God's will, to do all of God's will. Not to do part of God's work, to do all of God's work. 
Jesus knew exactly what was coming when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. The sinless God, the Son, was about to bear every sin that his people would ever commit. The loving God, the Son, was about to face the perfect wrath of a holy God for that sin. Who would have blamed Jesus if he said it was too great a price? But he didn't. His submission was complete. His obedience was complete. Because his love for the Father and for his church is complete. That's good news for those who receive it. Jesus' submission to his Father was complete. He submitted to the Father's will all the way to the cross. Jesus was perfectly submitted to to the will of the Father, but it's not as though they had different wills. Their wills were perfectly unified. The Father's will is that Jesus would lose nothing of all that the Father had given him, but that Jesus would raise it up on the last day. The will of the Father is that those whose faith is in the Son will receive eternal life and are raised on the last day. Verses 39 and 40. That's good news for those who receive it. Those who are drawn to the Son by the power of the Father and believe in the Son will be preserved by the power of the Son and raised by the power of the Son. Let's look at the response. In verses 41 and 42, they're exposing their hearts. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They wanted the bread of life, but they didn't want Jesus. He didn't live up to their expectations. They wanted to bring him down to their level. They considered his earthly parents and disregarded his father in heaven. They knew him as a man from Nazareth, a carpenter, and the son of a carpenter. They didn't consider his heavenly origin. So Jesus rebukes them, telling them not to grumble among themselves, but again he gives the reason for the rejection. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. They didn't come to Jesus because they weren't being drawn by the Father. They weren't being drawn by the Father, and they wouldn't be raised by the Son. In verse 45, Jesus appeals to the Old Testament scriptures, quoting Isaiah 54, 13, and they will be taught by God. Those who had truly received the Father's teaching would come to Jesus. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34 has the same message. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Their failure to come to Jesus proved that they were not regenerate. They were still dead in their trespasses and sins. 
And then we have yet more good news. Just as in John chapter 5, Jesus had called the Father as a witness to him, now he was calling himself as a witness to the Father. He says in verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And then again, Jesus presents the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Again, good news to those who receive it. His hearers couldn't appeal to their Jewish heritage. Their fathers had eaten manna in the wilderness, but they still died. That bread couldn't save them. This bread could. This bread comes from heaven. Anyone who eats it will never die. In verse 51, yet again Jesus tells them that he is the bread. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is getting really hard. We see the response in verses 52 to 54. They responded just as Jesus knew they would. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They thought that Jesus was promoting cannibalism. Drinking blood was forbidden in the law, let alone drinking the blood of a person. But Jesus doesn't soften the message saying, no, no, hang on a second. I know this is really hard to believe, but it's not as bad as you think. Jesus isn't being very seeker sensitive. In verses 53 and 54, he drives the point home saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is showing that there are two possible responses and therefore two kinds of people. Those who eat his flesh and drink his blood and live versus those who don't and die. In verses 55 to 58, he has more good news. He said his flesh is true food, his blood is true drink. Those who feed on his flesh and drink his blood abide in him and he abides in them. The living Father sent the Son. The Son lives because of the Father. Those who feed on the Son will also live. Jesus is immeasurably, immeasurably better than the manna. Eat him and live forever. Jesus wasn't promoting cannibalism here. He was pointing to his death. The only path to life is through the death of Jesus. The only path to life is through the death of Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church wrongly teaches that this passage points directly to the bread and the wine of the Eucharist and that during the Mass, they are miraculously transubstantiated or literally turned into the body and the blood of Jesus even though the, to the senses, the elements remain unchanged. Now we're going to be receiving the Lord's Supper later on in this service. But we aren't eating Jesus' flesh. 
and drinking his blood, we're remembering the price that Jesus paid to purchase our life. We're doing as Jesus commanded, do this in remembrance of me. T.S. Treanor explains that this does not refer primarily to Holy Communion, but to the daily, hourly, unbroken, continuous act of the soul. But at the Lord's Supper, which clearly refers to the spiritual act of the faithful soul, there is, of course, by the, by the faithful, the same eating as is here spoken of and is always and continuously done by all believers at, after, and before the sacred ordinance. In other words, Jesus wasn't commanding the Lord's Supper here in John chapter 6 but the continual faith and efficacy of Christ's substitutionary death for ours. This command to eat and to drink doesn't point to the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper points to faith. And not just faith for the few minutes while we gather together around the table, the faith for the saints that endures. The faith of the saints that endures. Then in verses 59 and 60 and verse 66, we see the response. Jesus taught these things to the crowds in the synagogue, but the negative response wasn't limited to the crowds. Many of his disciples also struggled. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus knew that they were grumbling and asked them in verses 61 and 62, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He was saying, Are you offended by me? What if you see the Son go back to heaven from whence he originated? He called them unbelievers because he knew who believed in him and who would betray him, verse 64. And he was proved right in verse 66 when we see that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They weren't disciples and they weren't his. Disciples here in these verses doesn't refer to the twelve. We see their response down in verse 67. These were people who seemed to follow Jesus. They went around with him as he, as he taught his truths. But they proved that they were not true disciples because they walked away. As D.A. Carson explains, just as there is faith and faith, so there are disciples and disciples. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we read, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man before he knew what was in man. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because they hadn't entrusted themselves to him. There was a large group of people that had followed Jesus and hung on his words. And in the broad sense, they were disciples. But being a disciple in this broad sense is not synonymous with being a Christian. 
As Gerald Borchardt explains, discipleship in John is far more than a matter of saying the right words or belonging to a group. It's a matter of obediently following Jesus. You can say that you're a Christian. You can even fool people long enough to become a member in a church. You can even fool people long enough to become a member, a leader in a church. But true discipleship endures. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. True disciples stay disciples. So these people that walked away were not true disciples. To this day, there are true disciples and there are false disciples. I'm sure all of us have known people who have genuinely appeared to be converted who have genuinely appeared to be showing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but have then walked away, followed after willful sin, and even rejected Jesus. Consider again the parable of the soils. Jesus taught that there were four different types of soil, but only one type of soil. Only one type of soil, the soil that had been tilled by the Holy Spirit, gave fruit for God's glory. Unless you come to Jesus, truly come to Jesus, his way, on his terms, and remain in him, you have no life in you. It is the one who endures to the end who is saved. And then in verses 63 to 65, again, Jesus gives the reason for their rejection. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 63, Jesus spoke the word. Jesus is the word become flesh. But our flesh cannot understand what Jesus is talking about, let alone believe in him, unless the Lord enables us to understand and to believe. Of course, people can give mental assent to gospel truths, but they can't understand without divine help. Those who are still in the flesh cannot understand with their hearts. They can't put their faith in Jesus. I know many people who can proclaim the gospel to you perfectly, but have never put their faith in Christ. Gospel truths are spiritually discerned, they're spiritually believed. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul contrasts those who are in the flesh with those who are in the Spirit. He says, The mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 6 so how does somebody go from being 
fleshly to being spiritual. They can't pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps. God has to do it. Spiritual birth is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught in John 3, verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We who are in Christ are born not by the will of man, nor by the will of the flesh, but by the Spirit. In verses 64 and 65, Jesus says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were his, those who would not believe and those who would betray him. And in verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. The only way that you can come to Jesus is if God enables you to do so. You can't make yourself be born again. Salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. Mono, one, it is done by God. It's not God doing his part and we do our part. God does it. Our response in faith is God's gift. Faith is a gift from God. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we read that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The grace and the faith, the belief, are all the gift of God. Repentance is a gift from God. In 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, able to teach in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God would grant them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Only God can free us. Only God can give us life in Christ. The gospel saves, but only through the power of God. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The spiritual birth is brought about by God according to his will. God has ordained that his word would be proclaimed. And then he has ordained that some would respond to that in faith that others would reject him. Finally, we see the response of the twelve. After many of the disciples walked away, Jesus said to the twelve in verse 67, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter here, in one of his moments of profound understanding, responded, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is on par with his Caesarea Philippi confession in Mark 16, 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But just as in, Mark, in Matthew 16, Jesus gives the reason, so he does here as well. When Peter had made the Caesarea Philippi confession, Jesus answered him saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter didn't figure these things out on his own. The Father revealed them to him. And in this case here, Jesus shows us that the reason for the faith of true disciples is because of God's sovereign choice. Jesus answered them in verse 70. Did I not choose you twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus had a reason for choosing the twelve. He had a reason for it. According to his sovereign grace. But he also had a reason for choosing, Jesus, for choosing Judas. But it wasn't for salvation, it was for damnation. So there's two groups of people. Those who eat the flesh of Jesus. Those who drink his blood and live. Versus those who don't and die. There are two types of people in this room. Those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ. And those who are not. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God would save many, even those who at this moment are living in active rebellion of Jesus. So where do you stand? Are you a true disciple or are you a false disciple? The answer to that question is by the way you live your life. Are you living your life to serve the living God or are you serving idols? Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you striving to do this and to love your neighbor as yourself? Or instead, are you living for sin and self? May the Lord reveal the reality of our spiritual condition to our hearts. May he grant us life in Christ. Let's pray.